This podcast is brought to you by the National Sea Grant Law Center at the University of Mississippi School of Law with funding support from the NOAA Sea Grant College Program. The views and opinions expressed are those of the host and contributors and do not necessarily reflect the views of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration or the U.S. Department of Commerce. Hi there. Welcome to Episode 8 of the Law on the Half Shell podcast's second season. Law on the Half Shell is brought to you by the National Sea Grant Law Center, which is located at the University of Mississippi School of Law. I'm your host this season, Zach Klein. I'm one of the Law Center's Ocean and Coastal Law Fellows. And as mentioned previously throughout this season, the Law Center works on a variety of natural resource issues that affect our Sea Grant partners across the country. So, it's not exactly a coincidence that the theme of this season of the podcast is COVID and coastal resilience. But just as is the case with the Law Center's non-COVID-related work, what has surprised me most during my time at the Law Center, and I think is more likely to surprise our audience members in general, is how much these seemingly niche issues can come to incorporate or touch upon seemingly unrelated, uncoastal aspects of our daily lives. This episode is very much in that same spirit. Former National Sea Grant Law Center VistaCorps fellow Taylor Harris is returning to talk with the Law Center's own Olivia Deans about the impact that COVID had on a Law Center project that Taylor was involved with concerning water quality in the Mississippi Delta. Of course, most people aren't going to think about Mississippi Delta water quality when they think about COVID and coastal resilience. But this is just one of many hidden facets of the pandemic's long-reaching ripples in both coastal and non-coastal communities alike. So without further ado, let's find out what Olivia and Taylor have to teach us in today's episode. Could you tell us, give us like a broad overview about your position and, you know, some of the things you work on? My position is pretty broad. So being in AmeriCorps VISTA is a year of service and you don't know like when you apply necessarily who you're going to work with, but you do know that it's going to be service work. You're going to work with a nonprofit and that it's a part of the job description to wear many hats. Currently for the UM led project, I do our outreach to facilities, to community partners so that, uh, I mean, because people can't like benefit from a service that they don't know about. So I do like our outreach, whether that be to childcare facilities um, that we're testing for the WinGrad project or for the Mississippi, we have a program with the Mississippi Department of Health. I do our, if we need any paperwork, like um, important information that needs to be filed away, synthesized in both online as well as in someone's head. (laughs) (laughs) And I also am doing a lot of our marketing so that is kind of how the Lead in Water series came about. If they're like, so social media for the UM Lead project, any social media posts, 
Um, sometimes that involves like infographics. When I say marketing, I mean marketing. Literally anything that would draw attention to the project, I do to the best of my abilities so yeah. more people can know about it. Oh, wow. That's great. I had no idea that when you like originally apply that you don't really know what you're going to be working on. So that's uh, that's exciting. I'm glad it worked out like that. Yeah. Have you always been like interested in drinking water or is this kind of a new a new interest? I will say that I've always been service oriented. So this is also something that they wasn't really known before, but my first job was a lifeguard at the Y and I taught swim lessons. After that, I worked at childcare facilities, like as like a preschool teacher. Uh, And then also in school, because I was in school during that whole time, I did the Williams Mystic Study Away semester. Um, It's a program through Williams College that happens in Mystic, Connecticut at the Museum of the Sea. And it's a whole semester uh, centered around environmental justice, environmental protections, just understanding in a multidisciplinary way, which also relates to the UM-led project. So um, the Williams Mystic program is centered around the environment, learning about the environment, um, climate change especially. So uh, drinking water specifically, no, but a lot of what I did during Williams Mystic is pretty relevant now, especially in terms of like environmental policy, um, being able to work with people, like understanding how contaminants can affect the overall picture of things, even though they're like a small part. In the conversation you are about to hear, Taylor and Olivia discuss two different aspects of lead in drinking water policy, blood testing and services for children to detect and respond to cases of lead poisoning and water sampling by public utilities to detect and respond to high levels of lead in water. The number 15 arises in both these contexts. And while it may sound as if the measures are interchangeable, they are not. The lead and copper rule requires public water systems to monitor and test household tap water for lead. If the lead levels exceed 15 parts per billion in more than 10% of tested homes, this is referred to as the action level, the utility has to test more frequently and take action to reduce corrosion. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention uses a blood lead reference value to identify children with higher levels of lead in their blood compared to most children. The CDC recommends children with a blood lead level at or above the reference value of 3.5 micrograms per deciliter be referred for follow-up. The Mississippi State Department of Health follows these CDC guidelines, but due to funding and other constraints, provides a sliding scale of services to families depending on a child's blood lead level. Only children with an elevated blood lead level at or above 15 micrograms per deciliter qualify for an environmental home inspection. With that, let's dive into the conversation. But throughout the episode, keep in mind that we're talking about two different aspects of lead in drinking water policy. So I know a little bit about the lead project, but how would you describe it as like an overview? What are some of the main parts of it? We want to bring like we want as many Mississippi residents to have access to clean drinking water as possible. And so that functions in a few different ways. The team generally has multiple projects happening at one time. Let's see. The Environmental Protection Agency um, releases like the Clean Water Drinking Act which federally regulates contaminants in water. But up until recently, like the last few years, 
testing in schools and or places where children are present wasn't required by the Safe Water Drinking Act. So uh, one of our projects focuses through, it's called the WIN Grant, uh, Water Infrastructure Improvements for the Nation Act, which allocates funds um, to encourage and uh, essentially pay for increased testing in schools and childcare facilities. Okay. So the WIN grant is our effort to um, accomplish that that work, like to test in child care facilities and schools. Right now, it's primarily in child care facilities because they're usually independently owned. And there's also the Mississippi Department of Health Program, the EPA, as well as the CDC. The Environmental Protection Agency identifies an elevated blood lead level as about 15 micrograms per liter. Um, The Center for Disease Control suggests that an elevated blood lead level in a child is at five micrograms per liter. Hmm. So when you're talking government regulations, that would be the EPA. And but 15 micrograms per liter is actually really it's pretty high. Yeah. Um, Yeah, there are graphs and information on uh, the fact that at about one microgram um, per deciliter in your blood, you start having significant impacts in terms of like IQ points, behavior. Um, lead is a really indirect cause of these things, right? So it's kind of hard to say beforehand, but the Department of Health program is a partnership with the UM Lead Project to increase testing. So if you had a child and they tested for 15 micrograms per deciliter in their blood, 15 micrograms of lead per deciliter in their blood, you would qualify for an environmental home assessment where the Department of Health goes in, they ask you, well, where does the child play? Where do they play? What's the drinking water? Where are they? Where are their toys? Where are they usually at? And the Department of Health goes in, tests the environment, and tries to find a lead source. But like I mentioned earlier, lead has significant effects at as little as one microgram per deciliter, and the CDC recommends that five micrograms per deciliter is an elevated blood lead level for a child. It's a level of concern. So our partnership with the Department of Health is to increase their, their ability to test. If a child tests between 5 and 14.9, which is just under the EPA um, required level for them to go inside, then they send the information to the UM Lead Project and we send them mailing kits to test their water. Interesting. So when the department gets a, a child who falls under the regulated, like falls under 15, but above five, they send like a their information to us just so um, families are aware of they can by process of elimination. Like they know, yeah. like, you know, maybe it's a little more elevated because of our water or maybe it's not elevated at all because of our water. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that seems like a pretty large gap from, you know, possible effects after one up to like 14 or 15. Well, the EPA is pretty clear that it's not a health-based standard. It's an enforceable standard because, and we'll probably talk about this like a little later, but it's always a thing of, yes, there's a problem, but 
who's going to pay for the problem to be fixed and how will we fix it? Kinds of things like that. So I think the 15 micrograms per deciliter, like I said, they're, they're pretty clear that it's not a health-based standard. Um, it's just one like to provide parameters in which like something definitely needs to be done and it needs to be done uh, sooner rather than later. How many people do you think you've had outreach for? Uh, With the wing grant? A lot. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So the, a lot of our cold calling the happens through the wing grant project. And I couldn't say. Yeah. a lot. We, a lot. Yeah. There was a point in time where I was maybe calling like 20 facilities a day and our list and I was splitting it with our team member from the Center for Population Studies, Vanessa Parks. So neither one of us like went, was able to get through the entire list because it's, it's pretty substantial. It's, I think it's composed of pretty much every childcare facility. Wow. In seven core counties and a couple of additional counties. Wow. Okay. A lot of people. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. I'm glad there's at least some of that, some effort there. That's great. So I know you started in January, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. During COVID, how do you think the pandemic has influenced this project? Or have you seen like a lot of problems with trying to contact people at all or anything like that? Coronavirus? has definitely made us creative. Yeah. Definitely, yeah. It's definitely made us creative. It's my understanding, this was the idea before I was brought on, but my understanding is that the original idea for the project was for us to go to facilities, maybe like do a cold call, but go to the facilities, present the information and be able to test the water Hmm. because we want to, we wanted, especially at the time, because vaccines weren't released yet, because we wanted to limit in-person contact. It meant that we started giving orientation Zooms, which would include our general, the general information on lead, uh, how lead can affect children, the steps for the project or how to get like basically how to get your water tested. We had allowed people the option to choose between remote sampling as well as socially distanced in-person sampling. So yeah, it, it certainly has made it interesting. I mean, because when you're, when you're cold calling, they don't know you. Like, yeah, they don't know you. And I feel like we like live in the age of like really convincing robocalls. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> people are already like not, they don't want to talk to strangers. They don't, yeah. they don't want to talk <laughs> to strangers. Yeah. So it meant being able to be really personable over the phone and to be able to make connections with people, even if we aren't necessarily connected. And on the basis of, I really just want to help. I mean, it it is um, important information. Uh, like we were talking about earlier, 15 micrograms per deciliter when like certain organizations, especially organizations dealing with children, like the American Academy for Pediatrics advocates for one part 
per billion, like in things like school fountains. Um, and then the CDC says things like five, but the public water system wouldn't have to notify anyone if it wasn't, if the, if when they tested the water, it didn't test above 15 grams per liter, which is hmm. different from the blood lead level, but the same number. If the water tested as having um, more than 15 micrograms in it, then then the public water system would have to notify the people who they're serving. But outside of that, they wouldn't. So it's possible that what health professionals would consider a little higher than what you would want to give children is present in the water. And they're at this like, especially for like preschool facilities, they're at this really critical time in their development. Hmm. Yeah. And then after the um after being like exposed to the lead and like you have like the negative side effects there's not really any way to undo them like if you end up with ADHD because of that exposure or hmm. you end up like losing IQ points literally that you there's not really a way to get those back yeah it was important to me personally to present um, the child care facilities with the information and to also provide like as many solutions as we possibly could, because we also didn't want to go in and like tell people like you have this problem. Yeah, <laughs> it's like really stressful and nobody would want to do that part. So the first step was having the opportunity to provide them the information on lead in drinking water or lead in children. And then also, like I said, to be able to go in and test and depending on what we find, provide solutions to them to make sure that everybody's safe in the future. Okay. Wow. Yeah. It sounds like it could be a difficult conversation to have, but very important. Um, Has the pandemic impacted like any of your other projects? Like I know there was like the Jackson, Mississippi project. I don't really know a lot about that one. Could you talk to me about that and any challenges you've had? Yeah, so I, it actually started while I was looking at the UM Lib project um, website and just looking at it uh, to find ways that we could better communicate the project to someone who ended up on our page, but maybe didn't have a lot of information about us. And I did, I came across a story map that the team had done on um, the Jackson water crisis. And I was like looking through it and I told Stephanie, I was like, well, this seems like a really cool, this seems like a really cool idea and a really big problem. And that essentially snowballed into a lot, um, like a lot of our like marketing efforts do or like uh, exposure efforts do. It kind of snowballed into just like really making the information available to people in a way that they could understand. Because I did my own personal research on the on the crisis, and I I think that at this point it's been long standing. Uh, the issues that the Jackson public water system has. And so, and there are so many moving parts that even if you were to Google like Jackson water crisis, it's really hard to know what's going on, why it's going on that way. I spent a lot of time actually trying to just figure out like, well, what happened right when actually the week after I moved to Mississippi, 
was uh the big winter storm and we were all snowed in. Oh yeah. Yeah. And that was during that time, the people in Jackson didn't have clean water. They actually didn't have any water. There wow. was a uh, very little water pressure. People who had been focused on providing uh, relief to people affected by coronavirus were now helping distribute water and making sure that like residents had water, period. And that was wow. the case for about a month. Wow, like, that long. Yeah. Their their water system came back up early March. The storm was probably second week in February. Very near to the second week in March is when um, they ended up getting water again. Wow. That's pretty intense. I can't imagine, you know, having a pandemic and then not access to water on top of that. Like, how challenging? I felt the same way, actually. (laughs) I felt the exact same way. Because people are people, right? And you want them to have what they need. Like off the top of my head, when I think about not having water, I would think like, oh, it must be like so difficult to not be able to take a shower or wash your hands. But their reading on the Jackson water crisis made me realize just how essential water is like to everyday life. There were stories about people who, had to have gallons of water for dialysis or families who um, had to decide like, can I wash this fruit off for my child or should we save that like to brush our teeth? There are stories of like people collecting rainwater in order to flush the toilet. Like it, it actually was heartbreaking. Like there's, there's literally no other way to say it because these are people, you know, like it, it, is frustrating and a little saddening that uh, where you live can res- can be the reason why you're restricted from something that is literally essential to life. Yeah. Especially when you know, we're going to assume that in general, uh, these people are like hardworking, taxpaying, and that is the security of having having a central governing body is that like, when large scale problems like this happen, somebody will be there to take care of it. So it it was heartbreaking to hear that they were failed in that way. Yeah. The city of Jackson is more than a hundred years old. And up until this point, there hasn't really been like a plan as far as the government is concerned. There hasn't really been a plan for updating water systems. It's just assumed that the revenue that the water system takes in, things like taxes will be able to cover those things. But Jackson is also like more than 100 square miles. So you have this huge urban city where there are like approximately like 60,000 households, a huge city, lots of people, but it's it's old. Like, it's old. And there definitely need to be updates made from my research i've seen where the mayor of jackson as early as 1997 i want to say allocated i believe 200 million dollars to updating water it gets tricky in that spending unfortunately and trying to make it better is kind of where a lot of their problems in terms of revenue start 
So they spend $90 million on a contract with a company called Siemens, which is supposed to upgrade water treatment plants, sewer lines, but mainly it's supposed to install these new water meters that more accurately measure the water that households are using, which would mean that they would uh, have increased revenue and more efficiency. They don't need as many people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's supposed to save them money and also make getting water more efficient for the city because with these new water meters also comes an automatic billing system. So Mm -hmm. instead of having to go to like the public water system building and pay your bill, you could pay it online, ease and convenience, which I love. I love being able to pay my bills. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm always like, but why? <laughs> but, yeah. But why? So I definitely understand the concept, but unfortunately, the water meters had a couple of things wrong with them. Uh, the first being that they measure water in cubic gallons, but the public water system charges for water by cubic feet. There are about six to seven gallons in a cubic foot of water so that means that like people were getting outrageous bills like six to seven times what they would actually owe oh wow that's yeah that's alarming (laughs) yes yes and the second thing is that some people stopped getting bills period because the meters were sourced from um europe they were sourced from europe which has a much colder, drier climate than Mississippi. (laughs) And so they, the batteries malfunctioned and a lot of meters just weren't counting, period. So people weren't getting water bills. Again, the city is like trying to make improvements on like really old infrastructure, but in their effort to make improvements, essentially, the revenue towards the public water system was extremely limited, extremely limited. Because again, there are lots of people not getting bills at all. There are people not paying the bills because why would I pay if I didn't use all of that? Like, right. Yeah. If you get charged the wrong number for like your order or like your food, then they either correct it. Or if you're lucky that, well, they corrected, but that kind of wasn't possible. And again, at with about 60,000 households in the Jackson area right now, it would take years to like fix the math manually. So they really did end up in between a rock and a hard place. And so the city ends up depleting the bonds of the public water system to try and keep water on because it's, it's essential. They're trying to keep water on. So they end up depleting their bonds. They take out emergency loans from the city to do things like water repair. And it's essentially kind of like using a credit card when you don't have a job. Because like I said, they're they're not really taking in the kind of revenue that they're supposed to or that they normally would. At the start of the project, it's like, oh, well, you're going to get, you know, all of this extra money. and You'll be able to save money and et cetera, et cetera. Very well-meaning, but it did not work out like that. when. Jackson sues Siemens for selling them an unusable product. They end up in a settlement for 
the 90 million that the meters cost. Okay. And while they won in that sense, they kind of lost still. Yeah. 30 million of that money uh, went to attorneys that represented the city in the settlement. Approximately 30 million went to paying back emergency loans that the city gave them. Essentially, 30 million to play catch up. Hmm. All that, you know, had gone wrong in the meantime, which left about 25 million to make repairs on the water system. In the meantime, right, the city of Jackson is still under a consent decree for their wastewater because uh, the wastewater was not being treated properly, as well as an administrative order from the Environmental Protective Agency. The point is they still have a problem. Yeah. Very similar to what I imagine losing one's income is like. You still have responsibilities. You still have bills that need to be paid, et cetera, et cetera. So in trying to upgrade the city uh, and to be able to provide the community members with reliable water, they really ended up in like this catch-22. And... So the the consent decree and the administrative order are still happening, you know, while they're in court with Siemens, while they're trying to figure this out. Because I think it took maybe, it took years. It took years for for the meters to be installed, for it to realize like, okay, this is not working. Oh, this is actually putting us in a worse place than before. Okay, we're going to go to court. Instead of going to court, we settle. So it's been like a really long drawn out issue. So there's um, been talk recently of the EPA working with Jackson in order to uh, be compliant. Uh, I believe they were given like $47 million at the beginning of the year to make more emergency repairs on the water system. But it is just this like giant problem Yeah. instead of like us like making small steps towards solving it, it essentially made it worse. Has it been harder to involve a community during COVID-19 or do you think you've been able to reach more people since we've transitioned a lot of our lives to like virtual settings? I would say that I have pretty frequent contact with the community. It has made it simpler in some ways, but just like you have issues communicating face-to-face sometimes, that can happen online. It might be a little easier to go back and um, correct those things now because everything, there's like a record of everything. A lot of your communication is going to happen through emails um, or like direct phone calls as opposed to like, let's meet at this time and then we don't talk until then. Uh, I think it has opened communication in some ways, but I will say it definitely has its challenges still. That's a wrap on episode eight. Thank you to my fellow Ocean and Coastal Law fellow, Olivia Deans, for laying the legal groundwork for this episode. And a huge thank you to the Law Center's former AmeriCorps VISTA fellow, Taylor Harris, for coming back and sharing her firsthand experience with how COVID has intersected with water quality issues in the U.S. Tough as these obstacles may have been at times, public health agencies and others providing water quality related services managed to overcome them 
and continue doing their vital work as best as the circumstances allow. Plus, there are other glimmers of hope on the horizon. For example, the infrastructure bill that Congress recently passed includes $15 billion to replace lead service lines and $200 million for schools to prevent lead contamination of their water. Yet another example of a law-centric chapter in the story of the COVID pandemic and, indeed, the nation.